today we're going to start a new sermon series. If you've got your Bibles, Matthew 5 is an obvious place to start today. Um, and we are running a series that's going to look at what Augustine called the Sermon on the Mount. He's the first guy to actually be credited as calling it that. And we are going to title our series Kingdom Mandates from the Mount because I just want to capture a bit of a thread in this as we go today. The Sermon on the Mount has captured the imagination of many, wouldn't you think? Loads of people talk about it, don't they? Sometimes it gets quoted to suit people's sinfulness. Have you heard noticed that? Matthew 7.1 gets a real good workout for people who don't want to have their life addressed. And yet Jesus is talking about a holy way. It's quite interesting. Um, it's been quoted by some good people in secular society as a source of ethical wisdom for the common man. Uh, President Truman was one of those people who was often well known for stating that. One of the old secular quotes, back in the, I think it's the 19th century this come from, Oliver Holmes Sr., most people are willing to take the Sermon on the Mount as a flag to sail under, but few will use it as a rudder by which to steer. So I love that one. It's not a clerical quote. Someone in everyday life. And I'm actually with this guy. I believe there is a call for every believer to examine in detail the Sermon on the Mount. Martin Luther said we've got to read the book of Romans every single day and know it inside out. I think the Sermon on the Mount is of greater worth. I think this is something we need to internalize really well. Um, you know, I really believe we need to li- commit to listening to what the Holy Spirit wants to say to us when we read that great treatise of what Jesus is saying here. I believe there's more weight in these verses than just a bit of an ethical code, which we nail in part and forsake in part. I don't believe what some preachers say that, oh, this is stuff that we can only fully realize in eternity. We're never going to live up to that standard anyway. It's just that makes what Jesus taught mere suggestion. And I don't believe that was the intention either. I believe the kingdom of God operates on the principles that Jesus laid out in this sermon. And our kingdom expression now deeply matters. We're going to look at the first couple of verses together today and we're going to do that in a moment. But first, I want to set a bit of a tone because whether you know this or not, the Sermon of the Mount is actually a clash of two very different cultures. This is a showdown. This is a meeting of human minds and a meeting of God's mind and Jesus actually exposing the right and wrong of where man is coming from. Let me start with the state of play with the people that Jesus is, is speaking to here, the, the people that Jesus is about to interact with. And we're looking at one of the ancient streets of Jerusalem there, just a bit of a common man thing there. The people of Israel are obviously the people that Jesus is interacting with here. These people have been in a very interesting position for quite some time here. They had once been a strong monarchy. And they experienced that in a really unique way. God was always their sovereign. But he anointed human leaders, human kings, to be able to govern the land and to lead and to do that under his way. Kings were elevated because God allowed that to be the case. David set the bar high. But David was also quite fallible, as we know. 
we do know that the Lord promised the king through David. And this is pointed to a number of times in the Old Testament. Even when Israel's monarchy is dissolved, when Babylon and Assyria come in and take the nation captive, when the kingdom is shut down and they are subject to other rulers, this promise of David and his line is still present in Scripture. This prophetic picture of a king increased in stature over time. He would be spoken of as having divine authority. Even if the, the Jews at the time would miss his complete divinity and all that, they would definitely understand that he came from God. They understood he would be a divinely appointed deliverer and a ruler for their nation. And in their mind, someone who would lead Israel back into a golden age again. In the days before Jesus' arrival, this messianic expectation is running at fever pitch. Something is in the air. People know it. The scriptures, the prophets have been silent for hundreds of years. But there is anticipation going on. Someone, the, the people are just knowing that this is happening. There's a reason that Herod wanted to kill all those kids in Bethlehem. It caused a stir to have the phrase, King of the Jews, come up. Created a stir. He knew what threat that meant to him and his paper kingdom under the Romans. But in amongst all that, there's a lot of messianic preparation going on. They are all aware of God somehow coming to a place of full sovereignty again. And that they should be a principal part of God's sovereign rule. But there was a wide range of ways this was being done. One of the heavily prominent ones in, in, in the New Testament are the Pharisees. We're all familiar with them to a degree, right? Okay, we kind of think we're folded arms and oh, Pharisees because they kind of had that negative light in there but there was a lot of good in their approaches. They had some really good motives. And they were preparing for the kingdom by calling the nation to flawless keeping of the Torah, the Old Testament law. And they did this in the hope that if you could get a critical mass of people who were holy enough, they could perhaps take arms and take over and rid the nation and bring a holy people back in order. And rid the nation of their uh, persecutors, their, their captors, the Romans. The zealots were a bit more coarse about it. They saw themselves as agents of judgment against pagan rule. And they used basically what you and I would call terrorist methods today to do that. They would think nothing twice of ganging up on a Roman soldier and killing him, just to make a statement. This is our land. There was another group who aren't featured all that much in the gospel narratives. In fact, not at all. The Essenes. These were an isolated bunch who stayed in desert places and they pursued their godliness out there. They believed that they were God's set-apart covenant people who would be elevated when God's time was right. And then you got the Sadducees. These guys were more of a status quo sort of people. They shied away from anything radical or deeply spiritual. These are the people who denied the resurrection and, and all these different things. They didn't believe in angels or spirits or all that stuff. And yet the Sadducees formed the high priesthood. The high Caiaphas and these guys were Sadducees. Imagine going to a church setting where no one believes in the spiritual. That's the state of play in first century <laughs> Jerusalem there. These guys could safely occupy seats of power because they weren't going to be radical. 
and the Romans didn't see him as a threat. They just sort of let him be and, you know, you, you, you let us be, we let you be. That's how it kind of worked. So this is how Israel was one of these ways. This is how they were sort of getting ready. They were anticipating the kingdom of God and trying to understand how it was going to be and where their part in that would be. And this is the sides that they chose to be part of. This is human culture coming down. And the Sermon on the Mount actually speaks into these things. When we address what Jesus is about to say, you'll find elements of the teaching of these four groups coming out and Jesus is addressing them all. And then we have Jesus. So on one side you've got man and his preparation. On the other side you have Jesus and his journey to the mount. If you read the first four chapters of Matthew before this sermon is delivered, you will see a very deliberate presentation of who he is. Matthew has a Jewish audience with his book, with his letter, and he wants to make some very clear points here. He's telling a deliberate story. In chapter 1, Jesus is very clearly traced back to the lineage of Abraham. He's making him in human terms a true son of Israel. That's important to note. In chapter 2, a messianic promise of being born in Bethlehem is confirmed. But then Jesus is taken to Egypt to escape the wrath of Herod. In Matthew 2.15, we see Matthew is actually quoting Hosea to speak of Israel being called out of Egypt. And Jesus is being tied to this idea also. Hosea 11.1 doesn't look like a prophetic thing. It's actually God reflecting on his people, Israel. And I called my son Israel out of captivity, out of Egypt. But now Matthew is actually telling something here. Jesus is being tied to this. Jesus is now the son, both of God and the son of Israel. He's now walking in the steps of the story of Israel. In chapter 3, he was last seen coming out of Egypt. He comes of age and he goes through the waters of baptism. Out of Egypt through water, sounding familiar. And straight from there, we've got the voice of God accompanying that and then the narrative takes us out of Egypt, goes through the waters, he enters the wilderness. 40 days to retell the 40 years of Israel. Then after that, Jesus begins his public ministry, roughly the age of 30. This is a common age for a priest to resume his, to commence his duties. And he's been anointed and washed and endorsed by a priest, John the Baptist. He's a priest by birth. His dad, Zechariah, was a priest. So as prophet, great high priest, Emmanuel, the Son of God, the true hope of Israel and the world, he then inaugurates his kingdom in chapter 4, verse 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is now at hand. All the Jews in earshot are being called to forsake all the agendas that I spoke of earlier, those four other preparation ways, and to choose to come on board with his way instead. Repent is not just this, oh, I'm just going to change my mind or have a bit of sorrow. It's actually a call to radically change the direction of your life. To radically reshape the agenda of your life. To conform it to the one calling you to repent. Then he selects his disciples. Then after Egypt, the waters, the wilderness, the kingdom, the followership, 
comes the mount. Again, the story of Israel is all over this too. Deuteronomy 27, 28. The nation is given instructions about entering the promised land. It says, when you enter, the people are to gather at the valley of Sechem. In, in first century, that's Samaria. And there's, it's a valley and there's two mountains. You've got Gerizim on one side, you've got Ebel the other. From Gerizim, the blessings would be announced. From Ebel, the curses would be announced. And the people would hear those and would affirm that and go, we will choose this day to walk in blessing. According to Matthew, for the sake of his Jewish audience, Jesus, the divine son, would be the true Israel that the Abrahamic people could not be. And now all of Israel's human kingdom agendas were off the table. And King Jesus is now inaugurating a whole new way. And that, friends, gives us about 1%, 0.001% of the backstory of the Sermon on the Mount. Now we're going to get into the actual sermon. So let's look at the first couple of verses just to uh, get some things started today. Matthew 5, verse 1 to 3. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Mm. Now timelines of Jesus' ministry often conclude that this, des- this sermon is delivered at the end of the first year of his public ministry. That's one of the the common timelines kind of put this at the end of what is called the year of inauguration. And we're around about on the start of what is called the year of popularity. Then there's a year of opposition. Then the passion. This sermon actually launched a popular period in Jesus' ministry. I'm throwing that in here because the first two verses here show us that Jesus has clearly developed uh, some status. It's not just the gathering crowd that tells me that, but the mannerisms of the rabbi and the disciples here. We read that he walks up the mount and then he sits down. That's classic rabbi work right there. It serves as the cue for the disciples. They, they see Jesus walk and they see him sit. And that is their cue. Wherever he sits, we plonk ourselves right at his feet. That's the way a rabbi relationship worked. And disciples work that way. We'll sit and we don't care how dirty the ground is. Not worried about our Sunday best. Not worried about our clothing. Plonk yourself wherever that is. It's not authority taken by force and manipulation. But Jesus has authority that is being given by those who are following. Jesus isn't taking authority here. He's walked in it and the disciples have handed it over. You are the authority. We're here to sit and we're here to listen. The phrase in some translation says, He opens his mouth to teach the disciples. Again, this is an everyday common Jewish term to describe the idea that somebody really important is about to proclaim something really profound. Matthew clearly wants his audience to see something significant being said here. 
And with all that done, the very first word that comes from Jesus is this one. Blessed. Now, I looked at that word and didn't, I've got all these buzzwords and Christianese that I've had in my memory for a long time about the word blessed. But you know what immediately came to mind? Facebook. <laughs> Lots of random posts ending with hashtag blessed. Who's ever done one of those posts? <laughs> hashtag blessed. Some of them are cool things. I've seen posts about families, people announcing pregnancy, you know, people who had a baby who was struggling in their first day or so of, li- of life but is now going home. Blessed. Hashtag blessed. There's marriages. There's all these different things. I love my husband. I love my wife. Hashtag blessed. Valid things. People are just genuinely happy with their life. But then I did an actual search for the hashtag. And I got some of this sort of stuff. Thanks for all the birthday wishes, my peeps. Usain Bolt. I'm beyond blessed to share my 30th birthday with you all. Blessed. So with all my strangers and people following me on Facebook and Twitter and that, hey, I shared it with you. I'm blessed. Awesome. That's okay. Me and my mum courtside at the Brooklyn Nets game. Blessed. Hashtag blessed. Because I sat front row of a basketball game. Okay. Grab the new inspirational apparel, including the new hashtag blessed t-shirt. I can walk around just going, I'm blessed. Christian marketing at its best. Reese's cups stuffed full of Reese's pieces are coming. Hashtag blessed. Yeah, I'm, I'm probably a tad too superficial to like that one. <laughs> Who likes Reese's pieces? I love them. I don't like peanut butter, but I'll eat those till they, till they fall out my home. Yeah. Hashtag blessed. There are other photos I probably wouldn't want to show you. I've got more selfies than I bargained for. Fellas with abs I will never have. Taking photos in front of the mirror. Saying how awesome the day was and how blessed they were. Thanks. I saw pictures of ridiculous sport cars I will never own. Like some ridiculous Maserati or something like that. And this guy's going, oh yeah, I feel blessed. Not exactly my first choice of car, but I'm blessed. I'll take it. (laughs) Incredibly ritzy holiday locations I'm never going to visit. Completed, you know, shopping expeditions in ridiculous places like Hong Kong. Detailed with hashtag blessed. Does blessing mean being able to gloat like that? I don't believe the, whole, the, the Sermon on the Mount is telling us to do this. It's not permitting us to go down this sort of path. Blessed was a word the people of Israel knew well. And they hadn't heard it in a long time. It was more than a word, it was a way of life which reflected their overall state before God. From the moment the people stepped into the promised land, they were taught to remember and choose the position they wanted to live under. You had blessing or you had curse, and the difference was whether you did it God's way or not. The first psalm, which is up here, shows this concept when David writes this, Blessed are those 
who do not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but who delight in the law of the Lord and meditate on his law day and night. In other words, if you made the right choices in life, if we chose to delight in God's way, you would attract the hand and the blessing of God. In Hebrew, the word for blessed meant to be right, level or happy. It was the word that spoke of balance and satisfaction. And as an important footnote for some of us who may have been subject to the whole word of faith thing, it's not just tied to material gain. And not exclusively tied to material gain as we seem to see a lot of the time on our hashtag blessed posts. A blessed Hebrew was a well-rounded, balanced, satisfied and therefore happy individual. They were confident in themselves because they were certain of the hand of God on their life and their whole being benefited from that position. The Greek also had, it speaks to a degree of happiness. Some theologians, John Stott and guys like that, think that's a little bit too emotive. Oh, happy is a subjective thing. Tom Wright likes the phrase wonderful news to describe blessing. Wonderful news. R.T. Kendall uses the word congratulations because being blessed means being approved by God. In our elders meeting on Wednesday, the idea of being in an enviable position came about. And there's some truth in that as well. When Israel was blessed, the nations around them were definitely envious. In a good way. When this blessing is demonstrated right, the balanced, enviable, God-approved happiness of Scripture will produce a response from those around you that says, I want what you have. And I dare say when Israel was on point, the nations around them said, we want what they've got. And sometimes that overlapped. Naaman the leper, I want what they've got over there. Can I go and wash in the Jordan? Unfortunately, the final word of the Old Testament showed God taking the opposite stance. In Malachi, there was a corrupt priesthood, tainted sacrifices, corrupt people, family breakdown and injustice. And they're shaking their fist at God and they're withdrawing their hearts from Him. And this final chapter of biblical history shows Israel in a state of curse. And all their efforts up to this point when we get to the sermon, the Pharisee holiness, the zealot terrorism, the Essene withdrawal, the Sadducee and Herodian tolerance, none of those things were moving the needle in God's sight. But the new way, the new kingdom could change everything. Israel had not heard the word blessed used in a prophetic way in centuries. And now it was being spoken of as possible again. Could the hand of God rest on his people again? Yes, it could. Not just on their nation, but anyone who would embrace the lifestyle that Jesus would outline here. So who would be the people that would be deemed as by Jesus as blessed? What does the kingdom of God call a balanced, level, satisfied, happy follower? 
Which Jewish kingdom approach was Jesus going to endorse the most? Everyone's leaning forward, waiting for Jesus to finish his sentence. And this is what he says. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom. That last line indicates ominously that the kingdom is not for everybody. Not because they're predestined to fail, but because they cannot come to the realization of their spiritual state. The Pharisees were not going to get this kingdom by bringing their resumes of good things. The Sadducees were going to have to actually make a call rather than sit on the fence. The Zealots were being challenged to look at the enemy within themselves, not the Romans. Everyone was being put on notice here. Humanity is spiritually destitute and our human effort to put things right might sound good, but nothing is going to get God's approval like humility and complete submission to God's assessment of things. Not our human reason, but how Jesus judges. Jesus is calling his followers to live differently and see their relationship with God differently. No amount of rules or rituals can, keep, can add any wealth to our spirit. The spiritual connection with God is about his grace extended to us, not the works we try to extend to him. Ephesians is right about that. We're saved by grace, not of works, through faith, so that no man can boast. The poor in spirit are those that acknowledge their own helplessness to save themselves and instead acknowledge their complete reliance on, on the all-powerful, the all-knowing, the ever-present God to extend the grace that they need to save them. They know it's not rituals they observe, but only the work of the cross that saves them. So they place their confidence and faith in what Jesus did rather than what they do. When we look at the Revelation, we see this attitude examined more. It's interesting how Jesus interacts with the different churches and the mindsets. Smyrna was a church in physical poverty. The followers couldn't get work because of the idolatrous trade guilds and they're left out in the street. Mercy and justice and, and charity is hard to come by. And what does Jesus call them? Rich. Their greatest asset is their eternal perspective of life. They've got nothing in the present, but Jesus still calls them rich. Laodicea is the opposite. In comfort and wealth, and they've got a false perception of blessing that comes with that. And their response to this blessing is to take the foot off the gas in their faith. They feel like they've already arrived. And Jesus appears, and he deems them spiritually bankrupt. Look at the phrases he says. Lukewarm, wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked, fallen. A blessed, approved disciple can only become that by the awareness of the poverty of their spirit. And they have a truly happy and blessed life because their dependence on God's grace is rewarded with the kingdom of God remaining near to them. But theirs is the kingdom. They become aware of the presence of Jesus within them. The kingdom comes near. And through humble faith and complete reliance on the saving wealth of God, 
we enter this inaugurated kingdom now. When you get saved, you enter the kingdom of God. You become a citizen of that kingdom. And they lived fueled with the hope of the kingdom fully realised in eternity. I'm going to sum everything up right now. Can I call the band up? We're ready to worship in just one moment. As we get into this series, today I was just setting up, I was just getting the groundwork done. But I've got three quick questions for you. The ancient Jews had a lot of preconceived ideas about the things of God. These things might have sounded humanly reasonable, but in the end, they needed to be dropped in order to embrace the kingdom way. And I wonder if some of us may be in that position too. You cannot come to the presence of God with your own agendas and think they're going to stick. You can't pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, if your agenda is still in the table. We come, Israel came with baggage and experiences and understandings and preconceived ideas and Jesus goes, yeah, none of that's going to work. Human understanding is going to fall dramatically short of the understanding of God. Is there anything we're holding on to that's going, you know what, I've got an agenda and I've got a feeling it's going to clash with Jesus. (laughs) Maybe the Lord wants to speak to you about that. Two, how do you live out the idea of blessing? We've got this idea here. It's a position of life that Jesus is inviting us into. The Lord keeps our hand on our life. He continually shows his approval to us. And this is success by faith. The old hymn is right. Nothing in my hand I bring. I believe sometimes the church world has made a mess of this word. And Facebook tells me it's become a throwaway concept. How do we approach it? If blessing means to you the levelness, balance and happiness that comes from living under the approval of God, then you'll be on the right scriptural track. If blessing means being a citizen of the kingdom of God with the understanding that this kingdom has a now but not yet element to it and so do all the blessings that come with it, then I'd say we may be on the right spiritual track, scriptural track. If blessing means prosperity, problem-free, sickness-free living with all your wildest dreams coming true, then I believe we may have a problem. Let me test that. If we, ever, if we never earn a huge wage and dr- or drive an expensive car, can you still look in the mirror and call yourself blessed without the selfie? If our health is never at its best and we even battle life-threatening illnesses, can we still call ourselves blessed? If we go through difficulties in life and experience real struggles, can we still, because of who we are in Jesus, call ourselves blessed? The answer to that under Jesus has to be yes. The audience on the hill had all sorts of issues facing them. Their nation was under the rule of tyranny and, a tyranny and military might. And Jesus wasn't coming bringing weapons or a military strategy. The disciples would face the threat of death and hardship simply because they said yes to this kingdom. 
But the life Jesus was calling his followers to had a far greater outlook than all that. It was eternal because the kingdom Jesus came to establish was eternal. It was global. And the Jewish followers needed to be prepared to lead the world, not just the way that they had hoped. And finally, this first beatitude. Are we poor in spirit? It's not just the day you get saved that you come to that point. It's a state of play throughout our entire Christian faith life. We cannot ever get to a point where we get so full of what we think is right that we go, Jesus, I don't need to be poor in spirit anymore. We actually have to stay this way. Do we remain aware of our spiritual emptiness? Do we remain aware of our need and complete reliance on Jesus? Do we remember that we're helplessly unable to save ourselves? Do we remember to cling to the grace of God rather than the false confidence in our own works? If we stay in that place, not in a sackcloth and ashes beat ourselves up way, but in a a real way that says, Jesus, you're everything, I'm not. If we can remain that way, we remain in the approval and the blessing of God. Let's leave it there. Let's close in prayer.